following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Would you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah chapter 6. And we will continue, as Pat just said, in our study of the Old Testament as we walk our way through this entire section, looking just at small segments as we go. Today, Isaiah 6. Let me begin by reading. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth and with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. In the year 1904, William Borden graduated from high school. William was a good-looking, athletic young man who was the heir to a very large fortune. If you want to get a picture, he's a doppelganger for Matt Damon. They are very similar. For his high school graduation, his parents gave him a trip around the world. Lavish, all expenses, here you go, 16 years old. He toured parts of Asia, Africa, into Europe, and the Middle East. But as he was exposed to the intense poverty and suffering that he saw in the world around him, this fun, pleasure-filled trip began to change as his heart began to change because he witnessed a world that was lost in sin and destined for destruction. And growing within him was a compelling need to do something about it. He wrote home to his parents and he expressed his desire to be a missionary in China. When he finally got home, he recorded in his journal these words, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. This would become Borden's motto and this man who refused to buy a car, who would not make lavish expenditures, instead began to systematically give all of his money away to missions, hundreds of thousands of dollars. As a result, he was told by his father that he would never work in the family business, and eventually he was disowned. Even still, he went to Yale, he finished college, he went to seminary, and then he set out for China. 
But just four months after leaving for China, William Borden contracted spinal meningitis and he was dead at the age of 25. His tombstone, which you can still find today, reads, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Now what happened to William Borden while he was on that trip around the world? What was it that caused the change in his heart? I would say that William Borden came in contact with God himself, and it changed his life forever. While gone, he saw the greatness and the grandeur of God. He understood God's heart for the lost and his power to save, and he became consumed with God's work in the world, and the course of his life was radically altered. He put his eyes fixed on God, and his heart was literally overflowing, set aflame by the cross of Jesus Christ. And like Isaiah said, he repeated, here am I, send me. Do you want to be used by God? Do you want to see the lost save? Do you want to alleviate the hurt of those around you with the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Have you ever in your heart said, here am I, send me? You pray, God, use me, whether it be for four months or whether it be for 40 years, use me for your glory. Doesn't have to be overseas, doesn't have to be as a missionary, but if you pray, God, use me at school this semester, use me in my home, use me in my neighborhood, at my job, use me in my co-op, with my friends and my siblings and my cousins and my parents. Right now, today, God wants to use each one of us. Are you there? Many of us are not. We're not. True, we came this morning and we have already sang songs and acknowledged the greatness of God. True, we sit here now with our, our hearts and our Bibles open to absorb the truths of God's scripture. But too often, as we leave this place and the moment fades, there's no lasting change. And we are content to live our ho-hum, uh, comfortable American Christian lives. We go to our favorite coffee shop, complete with the stack of books, right? Uh, we have our study Bibles, and we live in our Christian bubbles, insulating ourselves from the physical and spiritual needs that are all around us. But we don't burn for Christ. We don't ache for the lost. We don't see the need, and so we don't beg God, God, use me. Use me. And what's missing? We don't see God rightly. He is way too low, and we are way too high. And so we see our own issues, our own problems, and our eyes are fixed on me. In addition, we have an anemic view of God that keeps us locked in a continual struggle with the same old sins. Is your walk with God stale? Is your heart distant? Is your love cold? This passage is so helpful to the weary and wandering soul as Isaiah gives us a pathway back. He lifts our view of God. He lowers our view of self. And he reminds us once again that God is worthy of our very lives. And our goal this morning is to, to move us 
to a place where we say as individuals and where we say collectively, God, use me. That's the thesis for our time together this morning. God, use me. It is a prayer, and it's my hope that as we leave this place, less than an hour from now, you will pray, God, use me. We're not there yet, but let's see what's in this text and how God will use this to change our hearts even this morning. As we study Isaiah 6 and enter into the very throne room of God, Isaiah is recounting the day that he saw God and it changed the trajectory of his life forever. Let's look over his shoulder and follow along. Point number one in your outline, God is greater than you can comprehend. God is greater than you can comprehend. In order to pray, God use me, we must see him rightly and friend, God is greater than you can comprehend. In the first four verses of chapter six, we see seven different aspects of the character of God that will help raise our view of him. I will point these out one um, character quality at a time. Buckle up because we're gonna go pretty quickly. The first, God is alive. God is alive. Look back at verse one. He says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Now, Uzziah was the king of Judah for 52 years. And under his rule, the, the, um, Jerusalem became a strong and fortified city. As a result of his stellar leadership, the people enjoyed great prosperity and peace. But towards the end of his life, he looked back at his accomplishments, and his heart was filled with pride. And entering the temple, trying to take the role of priest... God, in a moment, struck him with leprosy. So the text says in 2 Chronicles 26, you can read the account there, leprosy broke out on his forehead, and the, the priest removed him from the temple. He was removed from worship, and he was banished to live out the rest of his days in isolation as a leper. And now here we are in 6.1, and the king is dead. Assyria is massing troops to the east, and civil unrest and the fear of war is brewing. And the people are wondering, where is God? Where is God? If you were to ask a contemporary audience that same question, the answer is easy. God is dead. He's been removed from our schools. He's been pushed out of our government. He no longer exists at the center of our culture. We are a society full of agnostics and atheists where God is at best viewed as outdated and irrelevant, and many would say that God doesn't even exist. But denying the existence of God is like standing outside in the noonday sun, closing your eyes while you feel the warmth upon you, and saying the sun doesn't exist because I can't see it right now. Make no mistake, there is a God and he is alive. In the garden, Adam saw God. Enoch in Genesis walked with God. Jacob wrestled with God. Moses used to talk to God as a man talks to his friend. The apostles saw God in human flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ as he walked on water, opened blind eyes, and raised the dead. And when Thomas saw him after his resurrection, he fell at his feet, and his proclamation was, my Lord and my God. Uzziah may be dead, but God is very much alive. Now, before we leave this point, I want you to notice who Isaiah says is on the throne. Look back there at verse 1. Who, who's on the throne? It's the Lord. The Lord, the title for God. But in Ezekiel's vision, in Ezekiel 126, 
He says that on the throne was one who had the appearance of a man. If we went all the way to Revelation 7, verse 17, it says that there in the center of the throne is a lamb. And if we went to John 12, 41, John tells us that Isaiah saw Christ in his glory. And I would argue that he has seen the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's move on. God is alive. Secondly, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Verse 1 goes on to say, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Now, who sits on thrones? That's right. Kings sit on throne. Uzziah the king sat on the throne of Judah. God the king sits on a much greater throne. Matthew 25, 31, it says that it is a glorious throne. In Isaiah 66, 1, it says that this throne is far above the earth. In Ezekiel 10, 1, it says that this throne resembles a precious stone. In Daniel 7, 9, it actually says that this throne is on fire. 1 Kings 22, 19 says that it is surrounded by an untold number of angels. This is the throne of heaven It is the throne of the universe. Now, when we read Scripture, you never find a vision of God where he's balancing his checkbook. He's never, like I did, running on a low tank of gas yesterday to fill up um, and just before I have to run to my next location. He's never late to work. He does not hurry around heaven like an overworked manager or become overwhelmed by too many things on his divine to-do list. Verse 1 says that he is seated. He is on his throne in the position of authority and control. And all is as it should be according to his sovereign will. In this room today, this means that there's nothing in your life that's not a part of his plan for you. No success on one end and no sickness on the other end. No disease, no loss of a loved one, no loss of a job or a broken heart, no strained relationship or anything else is outside of his perfect plan. The psalmist in Psalm 135, 6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep. Every molecule in this universe is under his control and functions according to his plan. God is sovereign. Number three, God is transcendent. God is transcendent. If you look back at verse one, Isaiah adds, he is lofty and exalted. Lofty and exalted and exalted. We tend to think of God, and admit this if you will, do you not tend to think of God as the highest in an ascending um, order of beings? You've got your one-cell organism with the little tail moving around, right? And then you've got your multi-cell protoplasm, and then it gets a little bigger, some kind of a mollusk shell type of a thing. That moves on to some type of a fish, which then becomes a reptile, which then becomes a bird, which then becomes a mammal, which then becomes man. And obviously then God is above all of those things, right? It doesn't work that way with God. God is infinitely greater than the created order. He is as high above the highest archangel as he is above the caterpillar. In 1 Chronicles 29, 11, it says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. A.W. Pink said before him, presidents and popes, kings and emperors are less than grasshoppers. God is 
transcendent. Number four, God is majestic. God is majestic. Finishing verse one, describes God saying the train of his robe was filling the temple. The train of his robe was filling the temple. Now, we've all seen weddings where the bride's drain, drain, the bride's um, dress has a train. Yes? Guys, if you don't know what that is, it's the thing that drags behind her as she walks, okay? Um, and you have that picture. I always, I always giggle because there comes the bride, radiant, coming down. There's this moment where they, who gives this woman, and boom, there they come up to the front, and they're standing there, and she's there. And, but right over here, there's a very concerned woman, the maid of honor. She's holding the flowers. She's looking, and something is amiss. And she, it's a, some kind of a double X chromosome thing. She hands that thing away over here, and she gets over, and she has to work this, get this thing going. She looks at it. Nope, not perfect. And then she gets it there. She comes back over. And that's the moment. That's the moment that, ladies, you all live for, and hopefully someday you'll get your opportunity not to be married, but to actually fix the dress, okay? But in ancient times, the greater the king, the longer the train of his robe. This train fills the entire room from, from end to end, from corner to corner. It is a tapestry woven together in a most amazing display of beauty. But that's not really important, but what does it tell you about the one who's wearing it? It tells us that he is a God of incomparable splendor a God of majestic beauty. And so we see that God is alive, that he is sovereign, that he is transcendent, that he is majestic. Next, God is revered. God is revered. Verse two, look there. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. These are unique and highly exalted angelic beings who dwell in the presence of God. The Hebrew word for seraphim means, listen to this, the burning ones. Which is no doubt why in Psalm 104.4, it says he makes the winds his messengers and flaming fire his ministers. These creatures stand before him in perfect purity, guarding the way to his presence, protecting his holiness, lost in worship, and ready to act on his behalf. Now notice in verse two, it tells us they have six wings, but they don't use all six for flight. Two are used to cover their face, two are used to cover their feet. Why? It's out of absolute reverence for God, they humbly cover their faces and their feet in, their, in his presence. In Exodus thirty three twenty, it says, no man can see God and live, and not even these holy angels look directly at him, but use their wings to protect themselves from his glory. Do you remember in Exodus 3, when Moses is walking through the wilderness, the desert, just like this? And he looked over to one side, and there was a bush that was on fire but not burning. And he approached it, and a voice came that said, Moses, take off your shoes, your sandals, for the ground you're standing on is holy. This is holy ground. This is the presence of God. And these holy creatures, even now in the presence of holiness, they cover their creaturely feet. They get them out of their way to acknowledge that we are creature and you are not. God is revered. Number five, God is holy. This is number six. God is holy. Verse three, and one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. These seraphim are not silent. They are heralds. One speaks, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next. They are calling out back and forth. They speak, and then they listen, and then they speak, and then they listen. Their loud clarion voices in this most hallowed place say only one thing. Their sermon is but one word, one concept. It is one thought, one permeating, all-encompassing idea. It is a singular uh, declaration that's repeated over and over and over again. And it's not true just in Isaiah's vision. It's also true in Revelation. John has a similar vision in Revelation 4.8 when he's taken up into God's throne room. It says there, don't turn there, but it says, the four living creatures... Each one of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. John wrote almost a thousand years after Isaiah, and these seraphs are still in the presence of God, still circling the throne, still crying out day and night and night and day the same message, because there are no other words. They exalt God in the highest way that a created language can afford with this one word. John Piper says, in the end, language runs out. In the word holy, we have sailed to the world's end in the utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. Of all of his attributes, holiness is the one that most uniquely describes God. It is that attribute that binds all the others together. Describing this, Steve Lawson says, sovereignty is the scepter in his hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Truth drips from his lips. Love fills his heart. Omnipotence is in his arms and in his hands. Omniscience is his eyes and his ears. But the crown jewel of all the attributes of God is his holiness. Now, for us today to highlight something, we put it in bold, we italicize it, we make it all caps, we may even change the font size. In the Hebrew language, they often would rely on repetition to drive a point home, to emphasize, to underscore, to magnify. One commentator describes this then as a super superlative. No other attribute of God is ever repeated, and none is raised to the third power. R.C. Sproul writes, the Bible never says God is love, 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 or God is mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. And yet, here, these burning ones declare him to be three times holy. Now, holiness can be defined in two ways. First, we could say that, that holiness is to be set apart. Or better, God is set apart. That's the original meaning of this Hebrew word. God is completely set apart from everything and from everyone else. He exists outside of the created order. He is set apart. He is separate. He is unique, unapproachable, unattainable. God is holy. In 1 Samuel 2.2, it says, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides him. Not only does it mean that God is set apart, secondly, it means that God is without sin. That's another good definition for holiness. Total and complete moral perfection. 
absolute freedom from every type of evil. He has infinite and incomprehensible purity. He does not conform to some holy standard. He is the holy standard. One author says that he is the sum of all moral excellency. So much does God hate sin that he created an eternal lake of fire for the devil and his angels after they sinned. So much does he hate sin that God banished Adam and Eve from the garden after they sinned. So much does he hate sin that God sent a flood of water to cover the earth. So much does he hate sin that God sent down fire to devour Sodom after their exceeding sin. And so much does he hate sin that God poured out his wrath on his own beloved son when he took our sin in his body on the cross. God is holy. And finally, God is glorious. God is glorious. The seraphs end in verse 3 by saying the whole earth is full of his glory. That is to say that his entire creation radiates glory and displays his awesome nature. You could say that glory is his holiness on display. MacArthur says, the glory of God is the sum of his attributes and of his divine nature. And verse 4, look there, tells us that at this declaration, it says the foundations of the thresholds trembled while the temple was filling with smoke. Now, I just picture this. At the death of Uzziah, Isaiah comes to the temple. He comes to that place, the house of God, a place to find rest, a place to find solace, a place to find direction as this prophet in God's people. But now, instead of finding peace and solace, the very ground beneath him is shaking. The very temple above him is filling with smoke, and God is actually entering the room. He is in the presence of a three times holy God. And so we see that God is sovereign and that he is transcendent, that he is majestic, that he is holy, that he is glorious, that he is far greater than we can ever comprehend. And now that Isaiah sees God rightly, we would expect him to exclaim with joy and excitement, God, use me. God, use me. I'm ready. Let's go. What do you have for me? But when Isaiah saw God, the effect was devastating, absolutely devastating. And that takes us to point number two. You are more sinful than you are aware. You are more sinful than you are aware. Isaiah was already aware of Uzziah's death. He's aware of the one who sits on the throne He's aware of the seraphs darting to and fro, declaring the holiness of God, and now, suddenly, he becomes aware of himself. This finite, mortal, defiled sinner stands juxtaposed in the presence of an infinite, eternal, and perfect holiness. And in that moment, he feels the crushing weight of his sin, and total despair overtakes him. Look at at verse 5. He finally speaks and he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. This is a pronouncement of a curse upon himself. In chapters one through five, he's made multiple curses upon the nation. Now he curses himself. 
The word for ruined means to be undone, to come apart at the seams. This is that thread in your sweater that you're like, I'll just get rid of that one. And if you were to keep pulling it, the entire thing would unravel. That's the picture. It is to disintegrate. Maybe even better, this word means to be damned. He's passing judgment on himself. He's literally saying, get me out of his holy presence. Send me to hell. That's what he's saying. And I think it's interesting because we ask the question all the time, uh, why should God let you into heaven? If you were to stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? This is a question that, that many of us have used and thought about. This is not the question God will ask. When we stand before God in our sin, there is no question. The sinner, seeing the holiness of God, pronounces judgment upon themselves. Please get me out of your presence. I will go out anywhere, get me out of here. And I know I deserve your wrath. He says there, I'm ruined because I'm a man, verse 5, of unclean lips. He sinned with his lips, with his mouth. And and this points to a greater problem because Jesus says that the mouth speaks out of the heart. Isaiah didn't have a mouth problem. He had a heart problem. And verse 5 says, I live among a people of unclean lips. Israel had a heart problem too. He ends that verse saying, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah may as well have been a bug trying to live on the surface of the sun. The intensity of holiness threatened to undo him. Now, Isaiah is not the only person who has claimed to see God. These stories pop up in the news uh, all the time, don't they? From the four-year-old who inspired the book, Heaven is for Real. Do you remember that one? To the man who went to heaven when his heart, heart stopped beating from the back of an ambulance. His name was Don Piper. Not John Piper, Don Piper. Um, These stories are typically pretty far-fetched and are nothing like the biblical accounts. Take the story of Robert Liardin. He went to heaven, and here's his report. Liardin said that Christ was about six feet tall, with sandy brown hair, not real short, and not too long. Jesus escorted me through the gates of heaven where I saw golden streets, dazzling-looking flowers, plenty of mansions, trees that swayed back and forth, dancing and praising as we passed, and a knee-deep, crystal-clear river of life. Upon walking to the river, Liardin recounts the first thing Jesus did to him. He dunked me. I got up, and I splashed him, and we had a water fight. We splashed each other, and we laughed. This is not the response that we see in Scripture when people come in contact with God. Let me just give you a couple. In Judges 6.22, God appears to the parents of Samson. Manoah said unto his wife, we will surely die because we have seen God. Daniel said in Daniel 10.8, no strength was left in me for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor and I retained no strength. And as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. He fainted in the presence of God. Ezekiel in chapter three, verse 23 says, I got up and went out to the plain and behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there like the glory which I saw by the river Shabar and I fell on my face. King Belshazzar, of Babylon, 
way high, exalted, strongest man in the world, Daniel 5, 6, as the hand of God is writing on the wall, you have, been, you have been weighed, you have been measured, you have been found wanting. It says there in Daniel 5, 6, the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. Have you seen this on TV where you think it's just like that doesn't really happen? This is literally what the Bible says this man was doing. Strongest man in the world in the presence of God. How about the Apostle John, who rested back on the Lord's chest at the Last Supper? The one who, on the cross, Jesus said, Son, will you take care of your mother? And mother, this is now your son. The one that Jesus entrusted his mom to when he left. He now stands before him in Revelation 1.17, the resurrected Lord of his church. And it says, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. A true vision of God is devastating. Sinfulness cannot dwell in the presence of holiness. It exposes us for who we really are, and we stand guilty and condemned before a holy God. A.W. Tozer says, such an experience cannot but be emotionally violent. Earlier this year, my daughter Zoe and I had the opportunity to visit a missionary family in the Republic of Georgia, which is uh, just below Ukraine, just above Turkey, some old friends. And I had the privilege of meeting Kaha, who was one of the men from the village. Missionary told me Kaha's story, how one night he got a phone call from his mother saying, you better get over here, something is really wrong with Kaha. He rushed over to find an emotionally distraught man contemplating suicide. As he asked questions and talked back and forth with this man, he understood and and recognized what Kaha was feeling for the first time, the weight of his sin in context with the holiness of God, and he saw no solution but to take his life. He was, Hebrews 4 says, laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So he opened his Bible And he shared the good news of Jesus Christ. And that night, after seven years of work, Kaha became the first Christian in this remote village called Didi Chikoni in the middle of nowhere. But here, like Kaha, Isaiah is laid bare. He is uncovered and unprotected. And he thought, this is it. This is it. This is judgment day. He was expecting to leave the presence of God and to enter into God's wrath. Hopeless and helpless, he recognizes his utter inability to do anything to help his cause. He's guilty and he knows it. Is this not the state of every sinner? All of us have been marred by sin. We have chosen to go our own way. And like Isaiah, we stand condemned. Do you see your sin? Do you feel your sin? God does. God sees every thought. He knows every word and every action. He's seen every deed that's fallen short of his perfect standard, every infraction against his holiness, every attack on his sovereignty, every question of his goodness, every doubt of his love, every worship of a lesser God. He's intimately aware of every one of our moral failures. And if you're feeling the weight of your sin, then realize that you're in the very same boat as Isaiah, desperate, hopeless, and condemned. And let me ask you a question. Is this the time to pray, God, use me? 
God, use me. I'm ready. I'm good. Send me where you will. I can do that. No. Isaiah doesn't pray that here, and neither do we. God is greater than you can comprehend. You are more sinful than you are aware. And what remains is a massive gap that cannot be crossed between a sinful man and a holy God. But thankfully, this is not the end of the story. And so we need not despair. Good news is coming. But point number three in your outline, grace is more amazing than you ever imagined. Grace is more amazing than you ever imagined. In verse 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. In great dread and overwhelming fear, Isaiah is waiting for the pronouncement of judgment. But the hammer never falls, and judgment never comes. Instead, he says in verse 7, He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips And look what it says there. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. The very same lips that he had just declared unclean were touched with this red hot coal and he was declared righteous. God took away his sin. Now we recognize this as a symbolic act. Just as the sacrifices of the Old Testament were symbolic pointing towards a greater sacrifice, so this too points towards the ultimate means of forgiveness. And it's not coals from a fire, it is nails on a cross. Sin was ultimately paid in full when Jesus gave his life. Now look back at your Bibles. What did Isaiah do to earn forgiveness? Look there at verse 6. You see it there? Oh yeah, that's right. There's nothing there. Absolutely nothing. He did not try to clean himself up or convince God that he deserved it. He didn't claim that he was a good person or even point to a life as a prophet of religious deeds. On the contrary, this is a unilateral act. It was all God. What did he deserve? Judgment, wrath, destruction. But what did he receive? Grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved. It is through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Listen carefully. Forgiveness is not an end in itself. That prayer that we make, God, thank you so much for saving me, and then either implied or stated so that I don't have to go to hell. Thank you for removing my sin. That's a great prayer, and certainly it is true. But forgiveness serves a much higher function. The point of forgiveness is to take that thing that separates us from God and get it out of the way. Holy God, here is sinful man. It is this big burden of sin. What forgiveness does is it takes this piece and it removes it and it pushes a holy God and a sinful man together so that there can be reestablished relationship. When Jesus died, The veil in the temple was torn in two, exposing the very holy of holies, the very presence of God, and now a sinful person can walk into the presence of holiness, not in abject fear, not in shameful disgrace, not in a frightful panic. For those in Christ, the apostle tells us in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation 
In Psalm 104, 103, verse 14, the psalmist says that as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. In Micah 7, 19, it says that God casts our sin into the depths of the sea. And God himself in Isaiah 43, verse 25 says, I will remember your sins no more. The war is over, and we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. And so we, Christians, enter the very same throne room, and we don't find a throne of judgment, but rather a throne of grace with a mediator who intercedes for us, who stands in our defense, and who welcomes us in as his beloved. And so Jude 24 says that we can stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. And all God's people said, amen. Now, look what happens in verse 8. A new voice is heard. For the first time, God speaks. And he says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah is no longer on his face. His knees are no longer knocking together. He's no longer pronouncing judgment upon himself. He is now standing in the presence of the blazing glory of the all-consuming holiness of God without fear. And now Isaiah is ready to respond. God, you revealed yourself to me. You forgave me and made me clean. You've restored me and now I offer you my life. I will give you everything. I surrender all. God, I know that you could send a holy seraph, but why not send a sinful man? I know that there's others who could do this, but would you still maybe use me at this point? I want to give something back. I want to say thank you. He doesn't ask, what is my mission? I, you know, I'm not sure I can do that because Thursdays I play pickleball. Uh, he doesn't say, I'm not sure if I can do that because, you know, they have some weird food over there. He simply responds, here am I, send me. He's ready. He's ready to be used by God. And God does use him. Isaiah would preach to Israel for more than 60 years. And this vision was the cornerstone of both his life and his ministry. And so we've seen that, that God is greater than you can comprehend, that you are more sinful than you are aware, that grace is more amazing than you ever imagined. And it's only now that we can pray, God, use me. As we close, I want to challenge you directly. Would you pursue holiness? personal holiness. We're commanded in 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy. What sin are you battling this morning? Shackled around the ankle that's dragging you down, keeping you in the shadows, preventing you from running after Christ. Your anger, your fear, your worry, your lust, your pride, your rebellious hard heart, your apathy. 
Let me diagnose your sin problem for you briefly. Are you ready? All of you at once. Here we go. Myself too. You have a low view of God. This is your sin problem. This is it. And the solution is not to focus on not sinning and try harder. No, start with God. Fix your eyes on God. Raise your view of God. And then when you're saturated with his sovereign, transcendent, glorious, majestic holiness, then the desire to sin will melt away. Second, can I encourage and challenge you to answer the call? God called Isaiah, and God is calling you. He wants to use you right now. Jesus didn't save us to be good pew-sitting Christians. He saved us to use us. He wants to put us in the game right now. He wants you to think radically about what it means to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow him. This is your one God-given life to make an impact for the cause of Christ, to be used by him, and to store up treasure in heaven. He's given you gifts. He's given you opportunities. He's given you resources and desires and passions, and he has given you good works to walk in. We need to go get it. So let me ask you, what is God calling you to do, mom? What is God calling you to do, dad? What is God calling you to do, student? What is God calling you to do, senior? Maybe it's time to take the radical step and start serving in children's ministry. (gasps) Whoa! Maybe it's time to start attending a community group where you can be about around other like-minded believers and grow in your faith. Maybe it's time to share Christ with that pesky neighbor or to love an unlovely spouse. Maybe it's about orphans and widows and abortion and trafficking. Maybe it's the training center the next time it comes around to get equipped. Maybe it's missions and you feel the call of God to go to the unreached with the gospel. I believe that there's missionaries sitting in this room right now Oh yeah, you haven't been sent yet, but it's burning in your heart. It aches as you see the lostness around you and you want to go. And I want to encourage you not to stop, not to be pushed aside, not to be told it's too dangerous or it's too far or it's too radical or or it's for others. No, it's for you. Stir up that passion and feel the need of the world around you that's in the power of the evil one and go. Redouble your studies. Get on your knees and pray. Go deeper into your efforts and plan. And may God use this as a spark in your heart to light the pathway that sends you out into the field. Listen, we're all in different stages of life. Most here are not going to go somewhere out there. Most need to be called to do something right here in our homes, in our communities, in this church. What is God calling you to do? I can't answer that for you. I'm just trying to move you from this step to the next step in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I encourage you to take one step today And pray this prayer. Are you ready? God, use me. Finally, would you turn from your sin and follow Jesus Christ? There are some in this room who are not Christians. Again, we want to say welcome. If you're new with us, thank you for coming. We are a group of just broken people that God has redeemed and brought together as we pursue and love Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, then stop running, stop fighting, and stop pretending. And come to God and ask him to forgive you. What a great morning to surrender your life to Christ.
after his death, William Borden's personal effects were shipped home to his family. In the margin of his Bible, he had written three phrases. All were dated. The first said, no reserve, written shortly after he gave his vast inheritance to missions. The second said, no retreat, written shortly after his father told him he would never work in the family business because of his commitment to Christ. And the third, written right before he died, said, no regret. Oh, that we would be men and women like William Borden and like Isaiah who burn for God and who answer the call. And may our prayer be, God, use me. Let's pray that now. Father, we come into your presence and we ask that you would use us. We pray that in our world and in our um, families, in our homes, in our sphere of influence at work, that you would use us to bring the lost to Christ, that you would use us to help strengthen those around us in the church. Father, we are broken and, and don't have much to offer, but what we have, we lay at your feet and say, please, take what you've given us and use it for your glory. We are so thankful that you saved us, that you washed us clean from our sin because of your grace, and now we stand forgiven where we can look at the Lord Jesus Christ, not seeing him as Savior, but not seeing him as judge, but as Savior, and we can lift our hearts to you now, even in song. It's in his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.